Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Eric Jorgensen. He's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He's a writer. He's one of the most thoughtful and interesting people I follow on Twitter. And he's got a new book out called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, which is the topic of our discussion today. This is a book he collaborated on with Naval, and they are giving the book away free online. It is essentially a collection of the wisdom of Naval, which was pulled from a variety of sources like Twitter, blogs, podcasts, YouTube, and other ephemeral media, and he assembled and organized the content into something that is easy to read and search, and it's in a timeless medium, the book. If you don't know who Naval Ravikant is, don't worry, Eric provides a bio. He's a fascinating and very successful entrepreneur and investor who has a lot of interesting things to say about getting rich, building wealth, achieving happiness, developing your unique talents, and leveraging them. Eric is a great guy, and I think you're going to enjoy this one. My friends, I bring you Eric Jorgensen. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Eric Jorgensen, welcome to The Good Life. Thanks for having me, Sean. This is going to be fun. It is going to be fun. It's one of my favorite topics here to talk about Naval Ravikant. And, and that's the topic of today is this new almanac that you've pulled together and curated and published called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. The book is a collection of Naval's thoughts, uh, his tweets, his podcasts, wherever he's spread his wisdom about things like wealth and happiness and judgment and learning and taking care of yourself and philosophy and all kinds of topics I hope we'll get into. There's a lot of wisdom packed into these pages. First, I'd like to do a little bit of context setting. Could you talk about a little bit about your background and also who is Naval Ravikant and how you were introduced to his ideas and, and how the book came about? Yeah, let's start with Naval. He's got a little more exciting story than I do. I was introduced to him as like an icon of the valley. So when I was in the process of finding my way into the tech entrepreneurship world during and after college, he was introduced as like somebody who's like, hey, go read all of the things that Naval has ever read and written and follow him on Twitter. And you'll start to see like how the Valley works and how to build companies and how to angel invest and all those things. And so he was somebody I looked up to and learned a lot from from afar just because of, of how I was introduced to him and to his ideas. And over the past 10 years or so, I've kind of followed him and he's shared so much valuable stuff, but it's almost all in interviews, tweets, podcasts, these kind of very ephemeral mediums that just kind of disappear. And I've gained so much from that. And as kind of the wisdom that I got from him just piled up, I spent more and more time thinking about how tragic it was that this was all just turning into dust. And I was trying to like refer friends to his podcasts and to Twitter. And if they weren't podcast people or whatever, so that was kind of this little seed of an idea that grew into the book and just trying to turn these lessons that have been so valuable for me into something more permanent, more accessible. The book's just such a timeless format that everybody kind of knows what to do with. It's a little more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And I really am grateful that you did. I was first introduced to Naval at the Farnham Street Knowledge Project podcast that Shane Parrish did. And I understand, I think he earlier did one on Tim Ferriss that was even bigger. I didn't catch that. But I remember thinking after I heard him speak that 
I thought it was very profound. I thought there was a lot of wisdom there. I was actually able to go in and download the notes from Shane's Barnum Street podcast site and see a transcript. But that was about it as far as having a place to go. And that's just a small part of what he had to share. So I think pulling it all together and putting it into this kind of timeless package called a book, which has been around for a long time and probably will be around a long time in the future. I think that's great. Talk a little bit about Naval himself. I know he's been very successful in Silicon Valley, but he has kind of an interesting background. Yeah, it's a very interesting story. It's very, very American dream. Immigrated from India when he was nine years old and his father's kind of medical degree didn't transfer. And so the family struggled and it was and his brother had kind of a single parent upbringing in New York and spent a lot of time in the library and spent a lot of time just kind of learning and trying to figure the world out for himself. And you know, I was working for catering companies and, you know, as a busboy and stuff like early in life. And he clearly had some natural gifts and ended up testing into Stuyvesant High School and getting into Dartmouth and really working his way into the tech entrepreneurship world from there. And just kind of had a, even an embattled start, I would say, in the kind of first decade that he spent in the Valley. You know, he had a few like intern in the legal world and didn't love that. And then a few short tenures as an engineer and ended up starting a company that was successful, but contentious among the founders. And that turned into a legal battle. And so, you know, it, there's a lot of kind of interesting maze wandering that goes on like early in his career that I think, you know, I certainly took some solace from and, and other readers did too, of being like, it doesn't have to look nice and clean. It doesn't have to be a logical kind of set of lily pad steps. But those trials really, when you look at his career as a whole, made him into someone very uniquely interesting. You know, he, what he would call specific knowledge. He became so much more knowledgeable about every specific term in all the term sheets and all the agreements between founders and between investors. And he started helping fellow founders negotiate their term sheets and understand and navigate their relationships with investors. And that is what turned into Venture Hacks, which was his first blog that he wrote with Nivi. And then that became how he bootstrapped his way into AngelList, which is you know a very successful company. It's kind of the almost the cloud platform for where Silicon Valley lives now. You know, people find jobs there, people find investors there, people find investments, people raise money, you know, the vehicles themselves live on AngelList. So it's really become this kind of very interesting almost conglomerate of startup products and this market network almost for for startups and investors and employees. Well, it's certainly reassuring that it's it's never seems to be a straight line to success. And I look back on my life and I guess you're kind of in the same boat. You were talking about your early trials in the Silicon Valley. There's very few overnight successes, and I think Naval even talks about this, that it's usually years and years, 10 years more or more of hard work and determination and getting better and improving and you know, compounding your skills. And that sounds like what Naval did. Were you introduced to him? How did you come to get to know Naval? No, that, I mean, that's sort of one of the wonderful little oddities of this project is I have never met Naval in person. I had no special access. I had no pre-existing relationship. I've still never talked to him live. Like we arranged this whole project. It's, it started just through Twitter. Um, you know, I just kind of had this seedling of an idea and tweeted it out and um, along with a, a dumb joke uh, and Naval had retweeted it. And I found out, I woke up to think that like, 5,000 people had responded that they wanted, you know, this curated book of Naval's wisdom. And I was kind of on the hook for Naval and on the hook for these couple thousand people. I was like, I guess I got a project to work on. Here we go. So that was kind of what kicked it off. And I felt obligated to go from the very beginning. And 
that was an interesting place to be, but he was supportive and helpful and we did everything through email, you know, relatively smoothly and quickly. And I should say like, we certainly could have done another interview and gotten like proprietary information or anything, but everything that is in the book came from publicly pre-existing resources. You know, I pulled probably a hundred different resources. It was well over a million words of source material. They got distilled and distilled and distilled and curated and collected down into this final book, less than 50,000 words. So it is just as dense as I can possibly distill his life's hard-earned wisdom into a couple hour read that I think anybody can get something out of. Wow. That's an amazing story. It's just, I find it just incredible that you could work together, pull this off and you know, through email and, and using tools and whatnot. And it's just a testament to the new economy that we've developed here and that you're a part of. There's certainly a lot of value in what you did. You took Naval's words, like you said, millions and distilled it down to 70,000. And we, have, we are overwhelmed with information. And to get a curated, concise, focused book on Naval's wisdom is great. And it's organized by different topics like wealth, how to get rich, while not being lucky, finding wealth, judgment. We're going to get into some of these, but it's really well organized too. Tim Ferriss wrote the intro. How did that come about? I can't take much credit for that. That's got a lot more to do with his and Naval's relationship, I think. But this also is a unique project, not only in how it came about, but also the fact that it's freely available online. You can read it, the whole body of the book on the website. You can download the PDF or the Kindle versions for free. This is a public service. This is not a, a money-making endeavor. So there is definitely, you know, it doesn't just fit the normal format of like, I wrote a book and Tim Ferriss wrote the foreword. It's like, I put hundreds and hundreds of hours into a public service of curating Naval's wisdom and turning it into a, a little more of a, a timeless medium and trying to make it accessible for people all over the world, which has really paid off in ways that I had never anticipated. But, you know, you get a few hundred DMs from people who don't even have access to the Kindle store, but desperately I heard about this book and really want it. And there's not even a way for them to buy it. And then the currency like exchange rate is unfavorable for them. And, you know, they're trying to like get on a VPN to get into a Kindle store. It's like, here's a PDF, rock on. I hope like a few of these ideas help you. And that like feels good. And it's not something that wasn't a problem that I really understood before I kind of had put this out there. And now it's something that I feel much more strongly about and really good about how we delivered it. Naval is very clear that he is not earning money from this book, like does not want to. And this is important to him, especially because it's a book about how to get rich written by a rich guy who says, anybody trying to sell you a get rich quick scheme is somebody else trying to get rich off of you. So it would be hypocritical for this to be anything other than a freely available, you know, it is basically donation based wisdom share. It's a kind of a towards the end of the career, like, hey, let me recap what I learned and share that with the world. You know, we see the same thing from Ray Dalio and hundreds of other business memoirs that we've all gotten something out of. Well, speaking of getting rich, I think Naval is well known for a tweet storm he put out there called How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky. And I think it even turned into a podcast series. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of what you've taken away from it? Yeah, it's funny that actually came out like in the middle of writing the book. Like I was already doing, he is the, maybe most famous for that Tweet Storm and podcast. And it was like, that was kind of ended up like rearranging what I was working on around that kind of piece as it came out. But a lot of the building blocks were already there. So it was just a kind of a new injection, which is like, you know, over the three years of writing this book, there's new content coming out all the time. So I was like constantly rearranging things around that. I started with the Tweet Storm 
it's maybe, I don't know, 30 tweets covering all of what Naval talks about as being the basically the bedrock, unassailable foundational principles of his worldviews about here is what drives wealth creation. Here is you know the sort of mindset and the sort of priorities that you need to have if you're going to build wealth over the course of your life. And it's a very, very distilled to get it down to 30 tweets. And so he did a episode, his podcast with Nivi talking about expanding a little bit more on that. And there's you know a few hours of conversation around all those ideas, which is fantastic and includes a lot more examples and things like that. And I tried to kind of keep expanding on that in the book because some of these ideas are, there's so much to them and you can tell he spent years distilling them and applying them. And there's so many, when we're all coming from different places, there's so many different examples and different applications and different ways to kind of unpack these ideas and understand them and apply them that it really helps to have a lot of reps. You know, I read this book probably 20 times in the course of creating it. And so I've spent a lot of time marinating in these ideas and I'm still taking step functions and understanding even after all this time of kind of seeing someone else apply something in a new way. Say, oh, this, this fits the format, this fits the format and just continually sort of beefing up those definitions and the clarity of those lenses through how you see the world. Yeah, I would encourage listeners if you haven't seen the tweet storm to, to go out and read it or just download a free copy of the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. It's right in there. The 30 tweets are in there with some further explanation. I'd like to pull out a couple of elements of that just to give people a taste for how Naval thinks. And one of them you've already mentioned, you call it specific knowledge. And it has to do with developing knowledge that really you can't just read in a book. You can't go to a website. You can't get specific knowledge from reading Naval's Almanac. Even you're going to have to go out and do it. And build it usually through an apprenticeship kind of relationship. But can you talk about that? Because that's really, I found that to be really novel. I hadn't really heard someone talk about gaining specific knowledge. It's not something when you go to school, a professor says, oh, and by the way, you better go out there and get the specific knowledge because everything I'm telling you is just, you know, everyone has access to it. So you're not going to get any advantage. Talk about that. The professors are there to do quite the opposite. Specific knowledge is a great way to start because I, I think that's the core of the whole endeavor really is, is understanding yourself and your gifts and your tastes and your interests and figuring out how to arrange resources and time and earn with your gifts and your unique interests. Otherwise, you're just going to feel like you're sailing upwind your whole life and struggle to kind of reach your full potential. Specific knowledge, kind of as, as Naval talks about it, is this unique combination, not just of what you already know, but who you are and your natural gifts all the way back to like your genetic makeup, really. And so you may have been born introverted or extroverted or particularly gifted at numbers versus language. And some of these things might define not your interests, but how you might approach monetizing your interests or what sort of job you might do within them. You know, there's through one lens, you could say there's a whole lot of certified financial planners out there and they all do the same job. But if you look at, if you line up 10 of them and look at each of their specific knowledge, maybe one of them used to be a pro athlete and has, you know, kind of unique gifts at understanding what that looks like. And one used to be an accountant. And so has a little bit, or tax accountant has super deep fluency in entrepreneurs and somebody else has worked with creatives. And so they have experience with, you know, lumpier incomes. And so I think there's specific knowledge helps you see how really unique each person is. This is an observation. I, don't, I can't quite remember if it's in the book, but Naval observed at some point that the combination of genetics and experience and interest makes each human so astonishingly unique 
that there is almost no one on earth who could substitute, who could do anything that you could do the exact same way that you would do it. And we see this in the people around us. There are no perfect substitutes for almost anyone that we know, except in very, very specific, incredibly well-defined roles where any person is acting more like a machine than a, than a human and using their own judgment. And so seeing each of those jobs as unique and working to push yourself as a set of skills and a set of interests and it's like ever more unique and working at the same time to find a circumstance where that uniqueness is valuable and applied against your goals is, you know, that's where your immutables meet the world around you's immutables. And you try to you know, just kind of meet each other in the right place in the maze. But seeing that one of these big steps is seeing that I think you can't take someone else's playbook. I feel like a lot of investors obsess over the letters of Warren Buffett and they're like, but if it worked for Buffett, it'll work for me. It's like, Buffett's a hundred years old and insanely dedicated and has all of these gifts and circumstances in time and place and perspective that you won't have. And if you're trying to be him, then you've already lost. And if you're going to spend your whole life trying to be more like him, you're going to miss opportunities that are more uniquely you. And so each investor has a unique set of perspectives and experiences. Maybe they all had the same consulting gigs, but they all worked with different clients. And so even though they're doing the same job, they accumulated different experiences. And one went to Dayton, Ohio, and one went to Portland, Oregon, and they worked with different clients in different places and experienced different worldviews and that positions them very differently to have their sort of unique edge in whatever decision they have to make now. Yeah, that's a great explanation of specific knowledge. And if you dig down deep enough into, and I actually agree, I just want to say I, I agree with Naval on this, the importance of specific knowledge. And if you dig deep enough into what makes you unique, then you can get to a point where you're the best in the world at what you do. And I know that sounds sort of conceited or sort of completely over the top or overly optimistic, but if you define it right, you know, if you get down I'm never going to be the best in the world at shooting basketball, you know, shooting basketball. So we can give up on that. But if I keep going down into my world, maybe it's within podcasting, maybe it's within podcasting within a certain area, maybe it's within my writing plus my podcasting, maybe it's within my investing knowledge plus my writing plus my podcasting. And all of a sudden you can find a place where no one's going to be better at being you than you. And that's where your specific knowledge can be sort of monetized with something that he calls leverage. And this is important too. He's, he makes it clear that you're not going to get rich by selling your time, being the best version of yourself. You got to apply some leverage and traditional leverage is labor. Another one is capital, but he introduces this third one, which I'm hoping you can talk about a little bit, which is, I believe he says, products that you can replicate at, at zero marginal cost. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's the leverage I'm guessing that you're probably pulling in Silicon Valley. It's certainly the one that Naval pulled, and it's the newest and most novel and perhaps most interesting lever that's available to us today. It doesn't have quite as snappy of a name as the others yet, but we're working on that. The margins that come along with basically any infinitely extensible code, media, so any audio files, any software files, even like trading algorithms would fall under this. Actually, I had a conversation with Jim O'Shaughnessy about it, and he's like, what about trading algorithms? Yep, that's definitely, you know, and the, so the kind of principle that you're looking for here is just no difference between cost to serve 10 customers and the cost to serve a million or extremely negligible ones. And so what we're doing right here, recording a podcast fits that perfectly. You know, a hundred people might listen to it. A hundred thousand people might listen to it. We still have only recorded it once. 
And there's only very negligible costs to kind of continue to scale that. And that, I mean, the products with no marginal cost of replication has defined almost all of the giant fortunes that we've seen newly created in the last 30 to 40 years, back to probably Microsoft. And, you know, Bezos certainly like counts as Facebook, counts as Google, all of these, and all the way down to Joe Rogan is maybe the freshest minted billionaire. If he's not already, he will be soon based on this kind of no marginal cost of replication and extremely small groups of people can create huge value for people through this productized leverage. You know, we see something that we track in Silicon Valley, roughly at least as armchair, you know, Twitter theorists is headcount over acquisition size. And so maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, I can't remember when the acquisition happened. It was really impressive that Instagram got acquired for a billion dollars with a dozen people on the team. And then WhatsApp got acquired for 17 billion with seven people on the team. And we don't know what the core team around Bitcoin is, but the value created for very small number of individuals, maybe just one person is absolutely enormous. And so you can see the trend of that continuing and we'll certainly see one or two person billion dollar companies probably much more often, which is just a thing that was absolutely inconceivable, you know, 50 years ago, certainly a hundred years ago. And so you just look at, once you have that specific knowledge, look around you for ways to apply leverage. You know, he says like, it might take 10 years to find the specific kind of circumstances where your specific knowledge meets the opportunity in the world that you know is going to result in success and you move on it with the maximum leverage possible. You put your whole bankroll behind it. You try to raise money to put more behind your insight and your skill. You hire people to help you accomplish those things. You leverage your time. You leverage software and media to help as much as you can kind of capitalize on on that opportunity. I found this such a helpful idea. And I think it's one of those things that when you kind of try to put that lens on the world, it has defined so much of what we've seen over the last kind of couple decades, but without a label for it and without some sort of system of understanding it, it's been kind of difficult to start wrapping my head around it and start studying it and start knowing how to reapply it. And I think it's a, you know, an important kind of mental model on the order of compounding, right? Like the thing that made Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett was his early, early understanding of what happens when you continue to compound 15, 20% annual returns. And I think we'll start to see plenty of people applying leverage with the same enthusiasm and the same sort of extreme outcomes over our lifetimes, certainly. Well, the historical significance is really profound. You mentioned one of the earliest companies to really capture this wave and ride this wave was Microsoft. And I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I'm podcasting right now out of Seattle. Redmond, Washington is just across Lake Washington. But in the late 80s, I was in high school and I was living in Eugene, Oregon. And I went to visit my father at his office and he threw a business week at me and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And in the business week article, I'll never forget this, mentioned how many millionaires were created through the IPO of Microsoft Plus at this point was a few years old. And he said, take a look at this and think about this. It was very you know, forward thinking of my father to throw that at me. I ended up getting into startups and, and getting into the startup world and the internet and everything. But it was amazing at the time to society to look around and say, where's all this wealth coming from? They'd never seen so many people under 30 worth millions of dollars because they started coding with Bill Gates and Paul Allen. And that was a very early sign. And here we are today. So I agree with you. It is powerful. 
It's a lens to think about as you think about your career. How can you apply that leverage to your career? How can you apply it to your business? How can you apply it to growing wealth? At the end of the tweet storm on wealth, Naval says something really caught my eye. He says, when you're finally wealthy, you realize it wasn't what you were seeking in the first place. Let's talk about that. So he says, once you do get wealthy, you'll realize it really wasn't what you were originally looking for. You're looking for something else. What do you think that something else was he was talking about? Yeah, I think the um, probably companion quote to that is that money solves your money problems, but that's about it. And you've got plenty of problems that aren't money problems, but you don't learn to separate those until you have the money and it only gets rid of 20% of what you were, were worried about or anxious about or unhappy about. That was, I think, is the passage that I used to transition between, you know, the whole first half of the book is really focused on how to build wealth and building judgment and, and all of the things that you need to do there. And that marks the transition between, sure, go ahead, get wealthy. Also realize that there's more work to do than that and more things that are important than that. And that you're going to have non-money problems that you're still going to have to solve. And, and we should probably talk about some of those sooner rather than later too. I think something that I've been guilty of, and I know plenty of other people who are, is just focusing so hard on reaching a level of financial independence that you really put that goal as a threshold before you even think about living the rest of your life. And the thing that I like about this book and the way it ended up is that it kind of shows you how all of those levers are interconnected and that delaying your happiness, choosing deliberately, even subconsciously, you know, just through your narrative to delay your happiness until you've reached some arbitrary threshold that you've set for yourself is, you know, not doing anybody any favors. Yeah, it's probably not a good trade-off. And, you know, Naval talks about this idea of happiness. And I know happiness is a really loaded word. It's a word that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So he comes at it from a couple of different angles. But one of the ways that he looks at happiness that I've certainly taken some value from is this idea that it's a default state, that it's a state where you're lacking desire. It's not so much a state of blissfulness or eternal bliss or this emotional state. It's more of a default state where you're no longer chasing something or desiring something, especially external to yourself, which leaves a certain peacefulness or a peace of mind or tranquility or an equanimity. Can you talk a little bit about that and what Naval is going after there and maybe how it's influenced you? I think that it's really easy to pick up and accumulate additional desires in, in our world. Um, and it's also, you know, Naval was the first one to introduce me to this idea, though I know it's kind of pretty ancient philosophy at this point. The, you know, every time you take on a desire, you, you take on an unhappiness, you know, and, and every time you can renounce a desire, you know, you're, you're a little bit closer to that moment where you don't need anything additional in your life in order to savor your, your breath and the breeze and, and what you have. You know, it's not something that's talked about a lot in Silicon Valley. It's always what's next, what's next, next company, next project, next sale, dream bigger, dream bigger. You can do more. You can change the world. All of those things are noble and wonderful and we should all aspire to them. But if you spend all day aspiring and, and just really focusing all your energy on the gap between where you are and what you want, it's easy to let years pass without realizing that that, that is a state of unhappiness and that you've got to sort of learn to walk that line between growing and appreciating where you are at the same time. That's a great lesson. I wish I could go back and tell my 20-year-old self that, give that advice to my 20-year-old self. 
I really see the wisdom of what Naval is talking about. And you're right, it is ancient wisdom. He even admits this. He says, this isn't anything new that I'm telling anyone. If you go to the Stoic tradition, if you go to the Buddhist tradition, if you go to Christianity, they're all teaching something along the same lines here. One common mistake is to attach your happiness to some kind of external circumstance. You know, for a lot of people, it's, I can be happy when I get that financial freedom you're talking about, or there's X millions of dollars goal or milestone in my future that I know if I can get there, that's when I can really start to feel happy. I'll be able to invest in more friendships. I'll have time to spend with my family. Maybe I'll even get married and, you know, all these things. And what, what Naval is sort of warning someone who's thinking that way is that those things really are what life's about. If you delaying years of your life to get there is not the road to happiness. Especially, I think, when it's something outside your control, right? So, you know, we're in the midst of, a, of an election at the moment, and politics, I think, is in particular something that the more judgments you have about the outside world that you can't control or affect on a daily basis, you're really seeding your happiness like well outside your control. And it's a little different to say something like, I'll be happy when I lose 20 pounds. But that's still, you know, you're, you're signing up for certainly 10 weeks of, of unhappiness at best. But that is a different, you know, at, at least that's somewhere within your locus of control. But really, and Naval says in the book, like, if you take on more than just one really main desire in your life at a time, all of a sudden you're juggling and you have split attention. And I don't know too many people that don't have more than one desire at a time. But I think that is the button that you have and the control that you have that is the most upstream and most directly correlated to your happiness is really just heading off those desires before they get piled on. And it's so easy to open Instagram and acquire three or four new desires in a 30 seconds on there. You're like, oh, great. You know, I want that for dinner. I want to travel there and I want to lose 20 pounds and, and just controlling your environment and realizing just watching desires come in the, your mental door and even learning to see, get out. I'm focused on something else right now. But that's a skill and it's not something we're taught and it's not something we're even, you know, necessarily as aware is happening to us. So it takes some, some recognition and that's where meditation comes in is just being aware of what's happening in your head and seeing some of those patterns for what they are and hopefully learning some of the mental habits around choosing the happier path. I'm glad you mentioned habits because that's another topic that Naval takes up, the power of habits in developing healthy habits. He talks about a meditation practice that he's developed, which is, I would say, you know, not necessarily the, the standard meditation practice. He's kind of developed his own and he encourages people to kind of figure out how to find some tranquility and peaceful state of mind throughout your day and gives some suggestions there. But he also talks about eating healthy, exercising, that sort of thing. One quote that really stood out for me is he said his number one priority is his personal health. I'd never heard anyone say that before. If someone was to ask me, I don't think I would have put my health until I was reading his argument or building the case. I would probably put health further down the list, but he had a very good case for putting health high up, which is without health, how can you take care of others? How can you take care of your family? How can you achieve tranquility, which will then help you do the things you want to do? That was something that was really novel and interesting. Yeah, I love that line. And I actually, there's a, a draft of the manuscript where that was the first line of the book. And I just dove right into health first. 
because I thought that was such an interesting idea. And if that's the highest priority, then that's the right order of operations. That was confusing to people and poetic maybe, but not a great reader experience. So that didn't make the final manuscript. But I do think it's a really important idea. And I think it's one of those things that is only clear to us when it's taken away. When we are sick and miserable, you're like, oh my God, I'd give anything to get out of this. I'm supposed to be doing something with my family today. I'm supposed to be doing something else important. I just want to feel okay. I just want to be able to get up and get around. That's one of those things that I feel like we are all constantly sacrificing our health for other priorities and just reminding ourselves that this is one of those prevention is 10x more valuable than cure. And you know, it's, it's much easier to protect it than to reclaim it. And that for all of the other priorities that you're putting above your health, if your health goes, those priorities aren't accessible to you anymore. And that that's such an important thing. And so that's why he has built his habits around that and built his habits, works out first thing in the morning. And that all of a sudden prevents him from drinking at night because he knows he has to work out in the morning. The business, he said, no matter what's on fire, it can wait until I spend 30 minutes taking care of my body and my mind in the morning and the fires can burn. And that's okay. I understand that that's my priority, which I think it takes maybe a certain amount of freedom to have that insight in the first place. You know, admittedly, like he's well beyond financially independent and was the chairman of his company, not a middle manager. But I, I think that that is something that it may take it to have the insight, but we all have the agency to put our health first. If it means waking up an hour earlier or making different decisions about what we put in our cupboards or what we order, like that is something that if we have the wisdom to look at the long-term consequences of our actions, we'll be a little better off for that. Absolutely. There's a whole section in the book about judgment and making decisions, which I found also very interesting and informative. He talks about judgment as, he defines it as knowing the long-term consequences of our actions. And I think spending some time improving our judgment, improving our ability to make decisions is definitely time well spent and, not, and often it's something we neglect similar to our health. And he advises us not to do that and to really work every day on our judgment. Anything from that section that you want to share? As is the pattern, he's got some kind of counterintuitive advice on that. And I think he talks about mental models, which I'm sure a lot of people here are familiar with just you know, from their exposure to Buffett and Munger. So there are a few mental models that Naval has favored in the book, and he talks about those and, and how to gain those. But something that he mentions that was the first time I'd heard it mentioned is the role of identity around judgment and decision-making. And this is back to sort of what we were talking about around passing judgment on the external world or having strong opinions about things. But when you adopt an identity, you adopt usually a set of opinions about what you think the world needs to look like, and you make decisions as framed by that identity. If I'm a white male American, that means certain things about how I believe the world should look or certainly how I see it. And if I'm Catholic, that means a certain amount of things. And if I'm a Muslim, that means certain things. And there are like bundles of beliefs that we take on. And with our ego-driven selves, we project our desires onto the world. And we have hopes and we have fears. And those really affect our ability to make decisions. And trying to get into a place of a lowered identity or a more neutralized kind of sense of self will help us be more rational, more dispassionate, more removed. And so I think of it as shifting from first person mode, from like looking behind my own eyes to kind of looking down on the scene from above. This is why if anybody's on Twitter, this is why Naval has like a faceless sketch as his Twitter 
photo and it's why you know his bio doesn't have anything in it like this is a very deliberate attempt to reduce his sense of self and his specific identity and not have labels sort of affixed to him that make him feel limited in his ability to reason and to examine beliefs and examine decisions we all have those things but as he says we should be suspect of any beliefs that we picked up in bundles like american or anything democrat right like all of those things are bundles that kind of come with a whole bunch of assumptions that if we pulled apart and examined each piece individually we may or may not actually agree with but feel like we have to because of those bundles that we've assumed and those labels that we've affixed and it's really hard to change our identity there's a lot of natural social pressures against changing and when you're part of a community and so realizing that when you put on one of those labels you know it's not as easy to take off or change as you might expect yeah and that sort of ties into this idea of seeing a decision or seeing reality clearly seeing it with a very objective perspective because when you've got the labels and you've got your ego tied up in it things look a little bit more cloudy and you may jump to conclusions or confirming evidence that are going to lead you back to beliefs that align with this identity as opposed to really looking at things objectively and clearly. And that's one of the principles he talks about. To have good judgment, you've got to look at reality and face it. And he's got a great line that says something like, you know, suffering is the moment when you see reality the way it is. And that really struck me because when I looked back at my life, the moment when you really suffer is the moment you accept reality. And up to that point, you're sort of trying to fool yourself. And the moment where one of my first startups was not going well, I was really deluding myself for as long as I could until the moment where I accepted reality. And that's when the suffering began. And I thought that was just a great insight. Everybody's got different flashbacks when they uh, when they read that line. I think yeah, it could be a relationship that had got that yeah. it's going off the rails, and you, you think that oh, I can keep it together, and then reality sets in. It's like okay, I got to suffer and really mourn this thing. Reading. Let's talk about reading. Naval is a big reader himself. He encourages people to read. What can you say about reading? What have you taken away from his advice on reading? He's got a lot of kind of interesting tactical things, but I mean, the, the overarching is just that similar to Charlie Munger, that's the prescription for building models, for building wisdom, just read as much as you can. And of all his advice is don't be a masochist about it. Go read whatever you're interested in. Don't let anyone else pass judgment on what's interesting to you or what you like. And the way he tells his stories, like I started with comic books and then that was what was interesting to me. And then it turned to kind of science fiction. And then that turned into reading science and that turned into math and that turned into philosophy. And you just kind of, you naturally climb the ladder of taste from one thing to another, but really it's a broad prescription to keep developing your specific knowledge. And the way to do that is to do whatever you will do with the most energy and enthusiasm. Maybe reading isn't for you. Maybe you love watching documentaries or YouTube. I would not hesitate to transition that outside of books as a medium. Books are certainly evergreen. And there's something kind of Lindy about the fact that some of these books have been around for many, many, many years that the YouTube channel may not, but there's a lot to be said for the merits of whatever channel attracts you the most and whatever kind of fits your gifts. But yeah, leaning into those things and not feeling like you have to follow any prescription around. Naval reads, skips around in books and reads only what's interesting to him and rereads the basics. That's something that he, probably the only thing that he's actually prescriptive about is like, be very sure you don't skip the, the solid foundation. If you understand math and logic, 
like basic fundamental science, then you should be able to kind of productively dissect any book in the library. Nothing should scare you. And if you have that solid foundation, then you can kind of navigate anywhere else. But if you skip some of that stuff, you may not be able to trust your own perspective. If you get into the thing where people are making false claims, but you don't have the fundamentals in place to know what's false and what's not, and then you end up kind of with a a little bit of a cloudy perspective. Yeah, you need to have your feet firmly set somewhere on some foundation. It can't always be shifting sands. And I think Naval's suggestion is to build things up from first principles and build up that mathematical knowledge, build up the logic, build up the microeconomics, build up the foundation that you can then use to filter through higher level order books. And stay on the basics. Naval is still rereading the one-on-one stuff because he says this is, you know, it's important to stay refreshed on it. And it's, that is a meditative and instructive. And I love no man ever steps into the same stream twice because it's not the same stream and it's not the same man. I think that applies to a lot of books that I've read and reread over the years, even the basics, like the math and the physics may not change, but the problems that you're working on and your perspectives and your sort of lattice work that you are going to fit this knowledge into, it has changed and you may get something completely different out of it. I definitely like his advice. He says something like, if you're studying evolution, read Darwin. If you're studying economics, read Adam Smith. When I started getting into Stoicism, I read some books about people who told me about Stoicism. Then I read the Stoics and it's like, these people are very accessible. And Adam Smith is accessible. Darwin is very accessible. But for some reason, when you go to college and university, no one hands you the origin of species. You know, they hand you something else. And I think Naval had a very refreshing view of that. I love it. Yeah, the origin of species is nine bucks. And the book that the professor wrote about the origin of species is 900. So there's no mystery there. So where does this project go from here? There's there something called Navalmanac. And is that growing or what's going on? Where are we going to go from here? Yeah, the Navalmanac website has grown beyond a book. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that got edited out of the, the final book. The first manuscript of this book was 600 pages. So I, I did a lot of work that did not make it into the final book that is up on the website and some background about the book. I mean, I'm having some very interesting conversations with readers around the world about these ideas and how to apply them. And some of the things we talked about today, people are like, can you help me? Like, how are we going to help people understand their specific knowledge? You know, people crave accurate, actionable self-knowledge. And that's actually kind of a hard thing to come by. It's difficult to assess yourself. And not everyone has a group that can provide reliable feedback around them to kind of help them develop that. I think leverage is a very early concept. And for me particularly, it's attractive. And I'm doing a lot of reading now and trying to kind of continue to expand and apply that as a mental model and study it. So there'll be more writing. There may be, I don't know what the medium will be yet. If it's, you know, a course or blog posts or a, I don't know, but I'm exploring some of these ideas. I can imagine a really cool kind of uh, like a book club out of all of Naval's recommended reading at the end of the book for people who want to study the ideas that Naval has put out. There's kind of a community evolving around this, which I think is really interesting. So there's a lot of ideas left to mine and explore and apply. And there's a lot of other really interesting thinkers out there that I think could benefit from this format. And I'd be really interested in maybe doing another book someday. Where can people find out more about you and about this project if they do want to jump into this community and get more involved? I'm on Twitter probably too much just my first and last name at Eric Jorgensen. I've got a personal site, ejorgensen.com that I do a little kind of random writing on and 
some of the stuff will pop up there. And the website for the book is navalmanak.com. And that's got you know new stuff there. We'll come out of that email list and get added to that site. But I got open DMs. My email's out there. I'm easy to find. I'd love to kind of have conversations with people about any of these topics. So don't hesitate to reach out. Well, Eric, this has been a wonderful conversation. Congratulations on the book and thank you for being on The Good Life. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.